invite Nick to share the word with us for today. Thanks, Shiona. It really is a time where we are called to experience this joy, and our joy as Christians is rooted in the magnitude of what we anticipate. And so as we've been moving into this season of Advent, we've been in the book of Micah, and we've titled the series, And He Shall Be Their Peace. So last week, Steve talked a little bit about this prophecy of how there was a king who would be the source of peace for God's people. We understand that that king is Jesus. And so as Christians, when when we move into Advent, we are anticipating the eternal peace that we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that peace is the platform that gives us joy and hope and purpose. Outside of the swirl of everything that we're dealing with, we find this coming rescue in the hope of Jesus. And so as we celebrate that, we've been moving through the book of Micah. It's a collection of teachings from an Old Testament prophet. He is basically giving God's people a picture of two realities. And, and they're called cycles when you're looking at the book critically through the lens of scholarship. There's a cycle of judgment, then there's a cycle of redemption. And that happens three times throughout the book. And last week we closed out chapter 5, which was a redemption cycle. And so he was telling the people the story of how God is a God who redeems his people. Even in their sin, in their rebellion, in their brokenness, God is a God who redeems. This week we switch back to the beginning of the last cycle of judgment and redemption. We're going back into a cycle of judgment. Another way to look at this is this is God calling out the reality of the sin of his people. And I think that's important because in this season, we talk a lot about what we anticipate and hope and rescue. And I think sometimes the weight or maybe even the magnitude of that is lost a little bit because there's this question we ask of, well, what do we really need to be rescued from? Is it really that big a deal? Like things aren't that bad, you know, like I know I'm not perfect, but what, what, like what's the big deal about a little sin here and there? I mean, other people's sin, I, I understand why that's bad, but like in my life, like what do, I, what do I really need to be rescued for? Is sin that much of a problem? Why is it so offensive to God? This concept of sin and rebellion, it seems like maybe it's a little bit of an overreaction. Do we really need to put that much hope in Jesus? And so that question is a part of what he's answering here in chapter six is what are the fruits of rebellion? Why is sin so dangerous? What is it about sin that we need to understand so we can properly appreciate the magnitude of what God has done for us? And this is a really interesting chapter because he's switching genres. Remember, this is not a book that Micah sat down and wrote from start to finish the way that we would write a novel, right? Where one chapter is a natural continuation of a narrative. That's not what this is. This is a collection of teachings. And so from chapter to chapter, you're not necessarily getting a linear story. Does that make sense? They're, they're actually collections of prophecies and teachings. And just like we would understand that there's a difference between um, when you think about genres of what we watch. If you're watching a sitcom, you understand that that's a very different genre than when you're watching reality television or when you're watching um, a police kind of show where you know that, you know, the serial where you know, it's very formulaic, right? And so we understand there's different genres. They're telling stories through different mediums, through different lenses. We understand what we're supposed to take seriously and what's not supposed to be a reflection of reality, okay? This is really a very similar concept because in chapter six, we get a genre change. This is actually a fascinating one because this, in a lot of ways, um, if you've been watching the Harry and Meghan documentary, like they're referencing Suits, the legal thriller, this is a courtroom drama. 
So chapter 6 is written explicitly as a legal proceeding or a trial that would have taken place in this time. A lot of the language that they use is intentionally mirroring languages of treaties between nations at the times. And so we're getting invited into a courtroom scene where God is suing his people and Micah is his attorney. Does that make sense? Does that kind of orient you a little bit to what we're walking in? And so what we're going to see is that ultimately... The guilt of God's people lies in the reality of what sin is, and that's that sin is a rejection of God's goodness. At its heart and at its core, sin is a rejection of the goodness of God. It's us saying, God, you are not enough. Your ways are not actually good for us. I am going to do things my way because you are not a God who can provide and do good things. At its core, when we sin, it's such a grievous issue because we're rejecting the reality of goodness. We're rejecting the design that God has for us and for the world, and we're saying we know better. And so we're going to look at why that happens, how that happens, and what it means for us when we reject God's goodness. And so let's, let's jump in here to chapter 6. He says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So this is jury selection. And so what's happening here is that the witnesses for this case, the jury, if you will, are the very mountains and foundations of the earth themselves. That's an odd choice, right? Like most um, jury consultants would probably take you a different direction in our legal system. The reason that he's using this imagery is rooted in the time that he's living in. So the conveying idea behind the mountains being a witness or the idea that they have this authority and that they have seen everything that God has ever done. They have a unique perspective to know the truth and reality because they have always been there. They're objective witnesses to God's power in creation over the period of time that his people have lived. Does that make sense? And so that's what's happening here. There's this legitimacy given to the mountains as a witness because they're objective and they've always been there. He says, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So first what he's doing here to open his case is saying, how have I done anything to deserve you breaking the contract that we made? What have I done wrong to give you an out? Remember, Israel's national and spiritual identity were both tied together in this idea of covenant. Specifically, at this point in time, the primary covenant that they operated under and understood was the covenant that God made with Moses, where he said, if you will be my people, I will be your God. If you worship me and obey my commandments, I will bless you and things will go well for you in a kingdom that I will establish. That was the foundation of their national identity. This lawsuit is happening because God's people have broken this covenant. They've broken their contract. God's saying, hey, I've held up my end of the bargain. What excuse have I given you to worship other gods? What excuse have I given you to disobey me? Don't you remember all the things that I've done for you? And then he kind of goes through this hallmark list that 
everyone who was an Israelite would understand and remember and celebrate. These are these, now think um, in American history, think about like Valley Forge, um, the beaches of Normandy, right? Think about these hallmark moments as a nation that we can go back to and say, we were triumphant here. That, that's the equivalent of what he's reminding them of. He's saying, hey, I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you these leaders that brought you out of slavery and into the promised land. He talks about Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He says, listen, I provided you leadership. I gave you freedom and direction. He says, I saved you from all of these nations that wanted to attack you. And he recounts all of this. And he says, listen, not only did I not give you a reason to abandon me, I gave you salvation even when you were disobedient. When you look at this history, there's two avenues of God's people's history that are being brought up here. One is his salvation, but two is what they were doing in the midst of him trying to save them. Do you remember their track record in the promised land? Even before they got there, when God brought them out of slavery in the wilderness, they complained about the food and they questioned if they were better off back in the Egyptians in slavery, right? Even in their sin, God was patient with them and brought them out. Even when they went into the promised land and said, I don't know if we can really go in. There's big people there. They're tall. Maybe God's not who he says he is. God still brought them into the promised land. Listen, even in our sin, God is good and patient. Let's apply this to our lives as Christians. We read Ephesians 2, um, 13 through 22 today, right? Right before that, at the beginning of Ephesians 2, when Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus about the nature of salvation, he says, even when you were dead in your sin, God loved you and sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. It's a very similar idea that he's communicating to the Israelites. He says, even at your lowest, I loved you and called you out of that which destroyed you. And so he sets this up to say, you guys are without excuse. And the interesting concept that we see here is there's these two different aspects of their end of the bargain, if you will, how sin manifests itself. They're called to worship God and they're called to obey God. If worship doesn't happen, then obedience doesn't happen. And we're going to see that here in the next section. But once obedience goes away, that's not an indicator that they're still worshiping. That's an indicator that worship stopped a long time ago. There's an intimate connection between these ideas of worship and obedience. And he's saying, listen, even when I had no good reason to, I gave you reason to worship and obey me. Because at his core, God is a God who reflects his goodness to his people and how he has designed the world. The reason that he called them to worship him and obey him wasn't because he had control issues. It wasn't because he wanted to stop them from enjoying this version of the good life that the Bronze Age around them was painting through the magazines and television that they were watching. It wasn't because he didn't like his people. The reason that God called his people to worship and obey was because it was the best possible reflection of the goodness of God shining through to his creation to give them hope and peace and joy. That's it. It was good for them. Because at his core, God is perfectly good and perfectly loving. And so we have this problem. We have the same problem that they do, right? We can look at our lives and, and say God has continued to provide for us. God's continued to show us the truth of salvation. God's continued to call us into seeing who he is, but sin keeps getting in the way. 
And sometimes we even get a little bit angry with God and we ask the same questions that maybe the Israelites were. Is God, where were you? Um, one of my favorite shows on television is The West Wing. I would say that Aaron Sorkin is American Shakespeare. And there's this season of The West Wing, season two, where the president's secretary dies. Um, she gets hit by a drunk driver. And there's this, there's this really powerful scene of Martin Sheen in the National Cathedral putting God on trial. Um, and it's unbelievably well-written and well-acted, but it's this concept of him saying, God, why are you allowing all of these bad things to happen if you're really good? Why are these things happening to me? Didn't I do good things for you? Is it not enough? Wasn't I obedient? Didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, where were you, where were you? We kind of have the same struggle with God sometimes. And so as we approach this season, look at the fruits of sin, God defends himself here. And Micah, he says, listen, I've never not held up my end of the bargain. I've always been a God of grace and peace and mercy. I've always been a God that's pursued my people. The reason that the world is broken is because people have rejected my goodness and tried to do things their way. And so he sets the stage for this de-evolution of the human condition that begins with rejecting the goodness of God. And so let's keep reading because... He's going to expound on this a little bit. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord? Because now it's the Israelites' turn to answer him, right? Like he's made the accusation. Now it's, it's their turn to cross-examine or call their witnesses. And they say, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? This is an unbelievably audacious and multi-layered response that they just gave. There's two ways to look at this, and there's truth in both of them. Basically, what they did is the lawsuit's been brought, the evidence has been presented, and their first response is, what do we need to do to make this go away? Like, this is a settlement offer. How big of a check do I need to write so we can all move on with our lives, right? Like, we know that we're not going to win the court case. Can I just give you some money? And so this really communicates a complete lack of understanding on the part of God's people of what they actually did. Their response to their sin is, well, how can we get you to stop being mad so we can get on with our lives? How many fights and marriages have kind of gone this way, right? Like, can, what do we need to do to just make this better so we can enjoy vacation? That's a version of what's happening here. And, and the crazy part of this when you see it is there's almost, there's almost a latent sarcasm in their settlement offer because of how it escalates. So they start with a pretty reasonable offer. They say, shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves of a year old? That's not crazy. They were commanded to worship God through the sacrifice of animals, right? When you look at their responsibilities, it was worship and obedience. And an aspect of that was sacrifice. They say, hey, what if we bring you a cow? Is that good? Is that good? Then they up it a little bit. They say, and again, burnt offerings, that's kind of an entry-level sacrifice. A cow costs a little bit more. They've upped their settlement offer. Now it just gets crazy. So they say, shall we come with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? That's not a real number. That's like saying, what is it going to take to make you happy? A million dollars? Inflation. Five million dollars? Like, that's what he's doing here. Would five million do it? That's an obscene amount of oil and rams. No one had that. No one had that. 
They're almost being sarcastic, like, man, nothing's going to make you happy, is it, God? Then they get crazy and say, what about my firstborn? Would you be happy if I offered my kid? Which, again, is offensive to God in two ways. Because if you remember, when God brought his people out of Israel, the final plague that visited the Egyptians was the angel of death, right? And the way that God's people's children were saved was by painting the blood of a lamb on the post of the door. They continued to celebrate it. They called it Passover. One of the formational events in the history of God's people was him saving their children. And so on the one hand, this is a complete rejection of everything that God's done. On the other hand, it's a complete complete disobedience of how he's called them to live. Child sacrifice was actually like crazy common in the Bronze Age. There's a god Molech, and he was kind of the god of child sacrifice. Those children were very well behaved in those cultures. And so what God said to his people was that, listen, you're not going to sacrifice your kids like the pagans do. We don't do that. And so for them to go to God and say, would you be happy if I just blatantly disobeyed you? Of course he wouldn't be happy. This is a complete misunderstanding on the part of God's people of what the issue is here. It's entirely behavior focused and their motivation seems to entirely be getting God out of the way so they can get back on with their lives. Does church ever feel like that? God, can I just check this box so you can get off my back and I can get back to what's really important? It's a manifestation of the rejection of God's goodness in favor of what we have decided is good right? And so here's what they don't understand. Their ultimate sin problem wasn't how they were sacrificing. It was their heart. We're the same way. Our hearts hold the key to our brokenness. So when we enter into this space of anticipation, of looking forward to the salvation that we have in Jesus, so much of that anticipation begins with a recognition of what in us needs to be saved. It's not our action. See, here's what God says to them. This is actually, I think, really, really, really meaningful for us as, as the church today. Micah answers him. He says, he's told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love kindness, or mercy is another way to translate that word, and walk humbly with God. So what does God want from his people? What does God want from a broken, sinful people? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That is the sign, that's an overflow of a heart that is worshiping and being obedient to God. Remember, we talked about those two ideas are connected. Obedience doesn't truly happen without worship first, right? Empty, hollow obedience is a box check that never lasts. And God says, I'm not interested in that. And you really see this theme throughout the Old Testament where God goes to his people in times of utter rebellion and says, I'm not interested in your religious actions. I'm very concerned about the state of your heart. And so for us as Christians, so often, well, what does God want? What does God want from us? What are we supposed to do? He lays down, he says, we want you to do justice, love mercy or kindness, and walk humbly with God. And I think this is a little bit of a sidebar application for us as a church that's true not just in Advent, but always. We are at a place right now in culture and history where, unfortunately, the church in America has just been bereft by a raft of sexual abuse, of financial abuse, of emotional and spiritual abuse. And unfortunately, something in us still has the same reflex as the Israelites. Look how many people we got to show up on Sunday. And I wonder if there's something in us for a church as we seek to be who God has called us to be that can see the essence of our hearts is really defined by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. It's weird that we're in a space, and I think it's the political climate, where justice has like become a bad word in church, and somehow justice is opposed to the gospel. When you read scripture, justice and the gospel walk side by side. 
They're never at odds with each other. You can't separate the two. And so as a church, the reason that we dig wells in Brazil is because that is a form of justice. There are people who don't have the basics that they need to live. And we are not okay with injustice because God's not okay with injustice. Remember the big issues that these people had at the time? We, we read about them a couple of weeks ago. They were taking advantage of the poor. They were murdering. They were stealing. They were completely mistreating everything about God's creation. It was not a just society. And God says, I care about justice. People who worship God also care about justice. As believers, if we are okay with injustice, it should be a red flag that our hearts are not aligned with God's. He also said, love kindness. We are not a kind society. We are a society that is addicted to a 24-7 cycle of constant banality, entertainment, and just like human dogfighting, where we rip each other apart because it drives clicks, right? And so as God's people, for us, to truly have the heart of God, we love kindness. We love mercy. Even when it's not deserved, even when the other people are bad, we're kind. We love them. We reflect the goodness of God. It doesn't mean we're okay with sin. That's not what it says. It just says that we love kindness. We love kindness. And it says we walk humbly with God. We don't walk entitled. We don't walk with God as a sidekick that gets us to where we really want to go, but we have this humble realization that we have a God who loves us and has saved us and has called us to a different life. And when we do that, we begin to live into the goodness of God in a way that reflects it to the world around us, right? But that doesn't happen through just showing up and going through the motions. God's not interested in that. At the end of the day, God doesn't want us to just make him go away so we can do life on our own. God wants to call us into a life of joyful worship, of joyful service, and joyful community. That's why Jesus changed everything. It wasn't so we would go to church and act good. It was so that we could live into the fullness of who God's called us to be. And sin is a problem because sin gets in the way of that. It fools us. It makes us think that if we can just kind of get God out of the way, then we can really get what we want. And so we're going to see what happens with that as we move through this text here. Because God answers them and says, The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it's sound wisdom to fear your name. That's a sidebar. He's like, as God speaks, it's wise for everyone to listen to him. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. This is a reference to the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians, right? Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? Do we think about our sin that way? The treasures of wickedness. He's intentionally using this language because not unlike most societies, one of the highest values that had kind of taken root in God's people was a love of money. They loved it. They always wanted more, right? He says the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Remember, so this isn't super complicated, right? Uh, when you were selling things in a market, oftentimes it would be by weight. It was in your best interests to skew the weights for your benefit. So if you were selling something, you wanted the weights to indicate that you were selling something that weighed more than it actually did. If you were a buyer, you would want weights that would make it seem lighter. Either way, at the core of this, they were cheating people. They were being dishonest. He says, you dishonest people with your bad weights, shall I acquit a man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? God's like, should I do nothing about your lying and your cheating? 
Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all of the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels. So let's talk about that for a second. Ahab and Omri were two of the most evil kings the northern kingdom had ever seen. They rampantly worshipped idols. They murdered their people. They were really, so um, saying that you kept the um, statutes of Ahab and Omri would be like us saying, you keep your books like Enron um, and, and SBF or you play football like Georgia Tech. Like, does that make sense? Are we tracking with what we're trying to communicate here? You guys are still good at math, it's fine. That's important too, okay? <laughs> does that make sense? This is, this is very much an indictment of how they've been handling God's word and his worship. He says that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Here's basically what he's telling them. The fruit of sin is death and destruction. This is why it's a big deal. This is why it's a big deal. Because, again, worship and obedience, there are two aspects of what happens when we sin. Okay? One of them is there is the moral evil of rejecting God's goodness and perfection. That is an inherently evil act because it is a complete neglect of the truth of who God is. So to have a perfectly holy and loving God that we reject is sinful because we're saying that's not enough. Then there's the concrete application of why sin is a problem. Another way to look at this, these are the ripple effects of sin flying through God's creation and reality. The physical manifestations of our sin always look like destruction. And he lists them here, right? No sin starts with, I want to steal, or I want to have lustful thoughts, or I want to murder somebody. That's never the start of the sin. The start of the sin is always a heart issue. It's God's not enough and I can't trust him. I'm scared, I'm angry, I need more. That's mine, this belongs to me. And these ripple effects of evil work their way through God's creation and break and maim and create trauma and broken relationships and shame and they put us in a place where we feel utterly hopeless. The reason that sin is a big deal is because it hurts. It hurts people. And what God's people are being invited into in this space is an examination of their sin. And the poetic nature of what you see, there's this kind of section where he says, you'll eat but not be satisfied, you'll put away but not preserve, you'll tread grapes and wine but you'll not drink them. So grapes and, and oil specifically were signs of prosperity, joy, and wealth um, because wine obviously, just like now, was expensive, people enjoyed it, it was a luxury item. Oil was very similar, and they were both primary agricultural crops of the kingdom of Judah. And so he is taking these symbols of prosperity, and he's, he's trying to make a point. He's saying all of the ends that you tried to leverage sin to get you end in emptiness and destruction. Because all of their sin was built around gathering these things. All of their sin, they're taking advantage of people, their dishonesty, their, all of their issues were built around leveraging God's creation to get what they thought would save them. Money, luxury, status, everything they thought they wanted. And in this judgment, God's saying everything that you use to try to get you what you want ends with you empty and dying. He's revealing this reality about sin. It tricks us. It makes us think that 
our salvation can be found in rejecting God and doing it our way. What this section is so beautifully showing us is that all the tools outside of God's commands that we try to use for salvation end in our death. The opposite of what they promise. So for me, I think there's some temptation here because a lot of times we read this and we have a couple different reactions, right? Um, one reaction comes of, man, how can God be so mean? Is sin really that big a deal? We've talked about that. The other one is, that's right. There is sin eating the fabric of our society and those people should stop. Right, so here's the challenge that we have to have. As Christians, a lot of times what we'll do is we do the opposite of what the word of God does. In scripture, when God is talking about sin, he's talking to two different audiences. When he is talking about the sin of people far from God, God's word always talks about calling them to understand the grace and mercy of God. When God's word is talking to people of God, whether it's the church or Israel, it's always talking about the people who know God being aware of their sins and repenting. We switch it. When it comes to the sins of us, it's, oh, well, thank God for grace. When it comes to the sins of other people, we need to get them, and it's backwards. It's backwards. Worship and obedience. Obedience happens after worship. The reason that Scripture talks about the sin of those far from God and points them to grace and mercy is it wants them to, it wants them to understand why God is a trustworthy Savior. For those of us who know God, we should have hearts that understand his grace and mercy that should point us towards wanting to repent and turn away from our sins. Do you understand the difference? So when we read this, it's very easy to read this and say, that's right, I have a list of all of the sins in our culture that need to read this, and all of those people should do that. I think sometimes for us as we enter a season like Advent where we are confronted with the joy that we have at a coming salvation is to be reflective and ask ourselves the question, where are there spaces in my life where I am trading the goodness of God for the sinful desire to worship something that I think is gonna save me outside of him. Not because we wanna live in shame, but because we wanna live in freedom and turn away from it. Listen, for me, for a very, very long time, and it's still in my heart, I think I am getting better as I'm getting older at controlling and filtering a little bit. Anger was a huge problem for me. That was sort of my sin of choice. Um, and so from the time I was young, my solution to a problem was always found in anger because through anger, I could, I could get a sense of control. I could neutralize a threat, right? It's like shocking on first strike capability that's gonna keep me safe and, and make sure that if I am big enough and angry enough and loud enough or just invective enough with my speech, then I can do what I want, remove obstacles in the way of getting what I want, and erase anything that might threaten me. Um, Steve uh, Heimler gave all of our staff a book at our Christmas party on Friday by an Irish poet, so you already know it's good. Um, his name's Dan White. Dan, did I get the first name right? Hmm? David White, thank you. Um, and so in this book he gave us, it's called Consolations, and it's a collection of essays that David White, Irish poet, has written about all these different words, and one of them was anger. I instantly read it. And one of his explorations of this concept of anger, he, he has this quote that stuck with me. He says, anger is a violent outward reaction to our inner powerlessness. And that's exactly what it is for me. And so for me, when I'm thinking about those spaces, those fruits of rebellion that I wanna eat, my anger is a reaction to the powerlessness that I don't like. When I feel like I'm not in control, I can assert myself aggressively enough to get what I want and to stop what's scary because I believe that I can leverage my volume or my force or my whatever to save myself. Hmm? It's not that anger's bad. We can be angry and not sin. Most of the time, that's not how it goes. And scripture talks about the fruits of anger. And I'll tell you that when anger was an un, 
un, un, just unhinged part of my life, the trail of that was broken relationships, a lack of intimacy, being out of touch with my own vulnerability, not trusting the Lord. And so much of my life was in shambles because of my anger that I lived in this constant cycle of shame and hiding. And it's because I said, I don't want to do things God's way. Forgiveness is scary. Peace is scary. What if that doesn't work? Vulnerability and openness is scary, but anger I feel like I can control. It's an idol that can get me where I want to go. The fruits of that were destruction, right? Right. So Advent, Advent is hope and peace in the face of that reality that as someone who struggles with sin, as someone who's experienced its brokenness, God doesn't leave me in my shame. He doesn't leave me stuck in a place of isolation. Because he's a God that loves, he has called me out of that and given me tools and people and healing and hope outside of me relying on anger. And that's just one. Like, I have a longer list for sure, just like I think we all do. But listen, my question for us as we read this is, where are those points in our life that we are cultivating fruit that is going to lead to death and destruction? God's called us out of that. He's called us to walk away from those places towards the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, patience, goodness, and self. Do you remember the song at camp? You guys, yeah, some of us do, okay. So Advent is a season of hope because we anticipate this rescue from these fruits that are choking the life out of the world that we live in. We walk around in the fruits of destruction all the time, right? Like we see dishonesty, we see violence, we see lying, we see cheating, we see sexual brokenness, we see people worshiping false idols, we see ourselves turning away from God and experiencing the consequences of that. And so sin is a big deal because it hurts. It hurts God's creation, it hurts God's community, it hurts our souls. And when you read this description of sin, the pathway out of it was marked by worship and obedience, and it always overflowed into relationships with each other first. So as a church, a part of our sanctification, a part of our justification, a part of our identity is loving one another. But we can't do that without the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so as we move into this season where the coming of Christ is getting closer, and louder, and hope is approaching rapidly, we have this ability to measure the weight and brokenness that sin has put into the world and understand that it doesn't have the last word. So when we read this, this should convict and open our eyes to the weight of what Jesus did, but it should not mark us with shame and hopelessness. It should do the opposite. It's in the face of this that we can say, Jesus died on the cross anyways. We were angry Jesus came and died for us so we could be forgiven and different. We lied, Jesus died for us. We murdered, Jesus died for us. We have issues with lust. We have issues with morality. We have issues with plug in the blank. Jesus died for us. So there's this hope that transcends this brokenness. And so as we prepare to respond to this today, we are not left to eat the fruits of death and destruction. We're invited to eat the fruits of salvation. And we do that in a tangible way every Sunday. We have these tangible reminders of an abstract concept that we don't fully understand and won't until Jesus comes back again. So we're left in this place where as we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ, we can have hope and joy that there is a peace that is available to us beyond anything that we get outside of God. And so this morning as we come and we prepare, we're going to pick up and touch and taste this reminder 
that Jesus Christ is our peace. In the midst of the weight and brokenness of a sinful world, we have a peace that'll never go away. We have a peace that's free. We have a peace that changes us. And so let's be a people that takes us seriously as we look at who we are in Jesus Christ. Let's recognize why sin is a big deal and let's walk towards the light that we have been called in through to through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let me pray. We're gonna celebrate communion. We're going to be able to partake in the fruits of salvation together. And let's worship God as we anticipate his coming, as we anticipate his peace, and as we anticipate who he has made us through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your word and that today as we see a hard section of judgment that we're not left holding the, the fruits of how we have transgressed against you. We're not left stuck in our idolatry and our disobedience, but we are brought to a place of hope and peace and forgiveness. So God, as we celebrate communion, we ask that you would continue to show us what it means to know you and love you and that you would call us out of the darkness of sin into the light of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.